Chinook Seedery is committed to quality, not mass-producing seeds as cheaply as possible. Their small batch roasting process leads to a noticeably better seeding experience, and their seeds come in delicious, one-of-a-kind flavors. There's nothing more American than baseball and spitting seeds. Whether you're headed to the ballpark or watching the playoffs from home, don't do baseball without a bag of Chinook seeds nearby. Head to ChinookSeedery.com and use the code MLB to get 20% off a bag of the best seeds ever. G Suite by Google Cloud is a suite of cloud-based productivity tools that includes Gmail, Docs, Slide Sheets, and Drive. You can make real-time updates to the same document without having to keep track of multiple versions. And since all the tools are cloud-based, your whole team can access the same document and work on the same page at the same time. Make it with G Suite by Google Cloud. To find out more, visit gsuite.com. Come here, angel trumpets and devil trombones. You are invited. This is the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I am a staff writer at the Ringer. We've got a very special show today. I'm joined by Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh to talk about division series action. Uh, as always, we are part of the Ringer Podcast Network, and which is itself a part of the Ringer.com. I would encourage you to go to the aforementioned ringer.com to go see our wall-to-wall coverage of the weekend in movies, notably A Star is Born and Venom, uh, two films that have captured the imagination of our entire staff. I also wrote about Alex Bregman as baseball's great uh, anti-hero or heel and the incredible postseason he's having. So please go read all that after you finish listening to this podcast or pause the podcast now and go read it and come back. Either way, it's all good with me. It is, after all, a free country. So now... Without any further delay, here comes Zach Cram and Ben Lim. All right, so joining me right now from Los Angeles, California, is Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Zach. Hello. And joining me from New York, New York, where he's been left in too long by Aaron Boone, is Ringer staff writer Ben Lindbergh. Hi. Have we had the whole trio together? It feels like we're crossing streams here. Not since the trade deadline when we had no, the three of us and Bill. I know. Yeah. We got Bobby Wagner on the line. Bobby. What's going on? Three-man pod. Three-man pod. Four. All right. Four-man pod. Four-man pod. <laughs> Four-man pod. So let's let's start with uh, the only series that's still going. Uh, I really think we ended up looking smart picking uh, Astros and Indians to go five games. Uh, Zach, I mean, his, his all-sweet pr- uh, prediction for the National League uh, end of the bracket turned out to be almost correct, so... But let's let's start with Yankees Red Sox since that's the only one still going on, and uh, let's get this discussion of Game Three and preview of Games Four and Five out of the way so people can listen to it and then uh, go and watch Game Four tonight. Uh, what the hell happened? <laughs> well, turns out the Red Sox are pretty good at hitting, and uh, that's not a, a huge surprise. I guess we can break down the Boone moves slash non moves, and I think they do deserve to be broken down, but. At the end of the day, as they say, the Yankees scored one run in this game. And who knows whether that would have been different if there had been some different sequence of events. But even your man, Lance Lynn, couldn't stem the pleading I could feel you smirking (laughs) from 900 miles away when he got lit up. It was not really the the typical spot for Lance Lynn. I, I guess the idea was that you needed a double play in that spot, and he's a ground ball guy. But you would think that that might be more of a Chad Green spot or really just not a Luis Severino spot to start that inning at all. Yeah, so I wrote about this uh, for the website, but 
Luis Severino from the first pitch last night, which Mookie Betts crushed for a 405 foot out, it was clear that he didn't have his best stuff. And there was a lot of speculation about maybe him not warming up on time. He and Aaron Boone and Larry Rothschild all downplayed that after the game. But whatever it was, something was off with him last night. He wasn't getting many swings and misses. And basically, every time the Red Sox hit the ball, it was going for hard contact, even if it was finding an outfielder's glove. Uh, So he got through three innings having allowed three runs, it probably could have been worse. Uh, So I think we all assumed that Severino would be done after three innings. Aaron Boone has been rather aggressive going to his bullpen in the playoffs thus far. He pulled Masahiro Tanaka after five innings in game two, despite him allowing just one run. But Severino came back out for the bottom of the order and immediately allowed two singles and a four-pitch walk. And then you bring in Lance Lynn, and I, like you said, probably would have brought in Chad Green instead. But when you bring in Lynn, it's okay. He can at least eat innings. Maybe game three is a lost cause, but we'll have an intact and full bullpen for game four. But then Lance Lynn lasts four batters, at which point it's seven to zero. And he brings in Chad Green anyway. So Lance Lynn doesn't eat innings. And Chad Green pitches 29 pitches. Jonathan Holder pitches 38 pitches. So now the Yankees really only have four fresh relievers for tonight, not counting Lynn, but you probably don't want him pitching in an elimination game anyway. That's what Austin Romine is for. You got to get his innings in. Only the the second position player to pitch in a a major league postseason game after Cliff Pennington of the Toronto Blue Jays. I I always Mm -hmm. love a good Cliff Pennington mention. Um, (laughs) It's, I mean, it's worth noting that when you lose by 15 runs, it's not completely the manager's fault, but this feels like one of those sticking points. I mean, that, that, that inning you're down three, nothing. And the, the contrast to, Alex Cora pulling David Price um, after allowing three runs is obvious. You know, just the game before, this feels like an inflection point or a watershed moment, or however you want to, however you want to call it. And and that's especially pertinent with CC Sabathia pitching tonight for the Yankees because Boone will likely need to be aggressive with Sabathia. I don't know if Sabathia, frankly, should face the right-handed hitters like Mookie Betts and JD Martinez and Steve Pierce more than once, just because of how dominant those hitters are and how Sabathia has been somewhat erratic in elimination games of late. And you'll need length. Dellen Betances can go two innings. Maybe David Robertson can go two innings, but that's pushing the boundaries. And you also can't use those guys so much that they'll be uh, rendered somewhat less than full for a potential game five. Would you guys say that this is a habitual problem with Boone? Because I know that he does get criticism from Yankees fans. I mean, every Yankees manager gets criticism from Yankees fans and every manager of every team gets criticism from their fan base about bullpen moves and leaving starters in too long. But it seems like Boone recognizes what he has in this super pen that the Yankees have assembled. And I wouldn't say it's something that I consider a a huge concern about him doing from game to game. I I think this was pretty egregious. I, I wouldn't say it cost them the game, but it certainly helped Boston blow it open. But going forward, to the extent that they do, I wouldn't say that it's a, a real problem that he has had all season long or you know that you would expect in a, an elimination game for him to stick too long with Sabathia. Well, I think part of the problem is, and we've seen this in both of the National League series, is experience, particularly recent experience, has tended to to win out. I thought Dave Roberts having a lot of experience managing in the playoffs under 
current conditions made a big difference in the Dodgers versus Brave series versus Brad Snicker, who's never been there before. And you think of even in a in the other series, the Brewers Rockies series between two relatively inexperienced playoff managers, Craig Council pushing all the right buttons made a lot of difference. And I think, you know, you'd think that Boone would would have a similar amount of of you know, you talked about him going to the bullpen early during the regular season is you know, his willingness to do that. It's but this is still a different animal. And I think this is where you see inexperience or lack of, of ability or feel or I don't know how to how to put it. You know, this it really gets exposed in a way that the regular season is so much about ironing out the bumps and keeping everybody on the same page. Like there's, this is where the tactical part of the manager's job really gets important. And I wonder if it's, if there's just no way to notice, you know, no way to to tell how a manager is tactically during the regular season until he gets thrown off the deep end like this. With Alex Cora, who was Houston's bench coach last year under AJ Hinch, it did strike me that he might have taken some lessons from the Astros run where they didn't, especially by the World Series against the Dodgers, have any reliable bullpen arms and ended up using some of their starters as almost piggyback relievers or just full relievers. Charlie Morton closing out the World Series, Lance McCullers closing out Game 7 against the Yankees. And it struck me as something that he might have taken a lesson from when he used Rick Porcello as a setup man in Game 1. There were reports after that game that if Porce- if the Red Sox had had a lead in Game 2, they would have used Porcello in a setup role again and then just taken the Game 4 starter as it came. So I wonder if, for Cora, he is operating under those same belief systems that Hinch did last year. He's obviously using Eduardo Rodriguez in relief as well. So that might be a way to help paper over some of the cracks in this uh, admittedly skeptical Boston bullpen. Yeah, and that hasn't really held them back thus far in this series. I think their bullpen ERA for 13 innings or so is in the mid-threes, which is not a disaster. And they have a lot of relievers who you would sort of expect to be in that ERA range. Other than Kimbrell, they don't really have anyone that you look at and think he is just going to be dominant the way that the Yankees have four or so guys. But to this point, it hasn't really been crucial. And I think even in the price game, when he got pulled that was a game that you expected to end up 16 to 1 because when Price leaves after an inning in two thirds, we've been talking about this shaky bullpen. That seems like it's going to get out of hand, and it never did. And really, there wasn't much separation at all until the second Sanchez homer. So I think it's held up okay, but you still can't feel great about anyone in that pen other than Kimbrell and maybe Barnes. Yeah. And one last thing about Core versus Boone, I think, you know, to inexperience, both of these guys pretty much went from the ESPN baseball tonight set to managing the two, I don't know, you could argue the two biggest teams in, in baseball and core just having that one season of apprenticeship under AJ Hinch's bench coach in Houston. You know, there's a difference. There's such a huge difference between having almost no experience as a manager or a coach and literally no experience. And, you know, he's been through this. He's watched AJ Hinch. He's helped AJ Hinch navigate a similar situation to the one he's in in Boston right now. And I think there's there's just so much to be said for knowing what that situation looks like and feels like firsthand. And, you know, that's not to say that, it, that Aaron Boone won't improve or that he'll, I hope he'll, he'll learn from this mistake. Um, but watching watching this happen firsthand, I, I think you see the difference between Alex Korhat being inexperienced and Aaron Boone 
having no previous managerial experience. And, you know, as far as and what he might take from that uh, that lesson last year in the playoffs is maybe it doesn't matter if you don't have any good relievers. Maybe you just got you know the Astros mashed their way through large parts of that World Series. You know, maybe Chris Sale pitches like Justin Verlander did last year, and they sort of make things work and win a bunch of games eight to six. And, and that's just how, how things work. I think that's the, that's the roadmap uh, forward for the Red Sox, assuming they get out of this series. Yeah. And speaking of moves, Cora made the lineup decisions he made last night. He replaced four members of his starting lineup, which is a lot for the playoffs. And some were, I guess, less controversial than others, but Adding Brock Holt, who at the cycle obviously looks like a stroke of genius now, adding Rafael Devers instead of Eduardo Nunez, who we were joking about in Slack as a secret Yankee operative because he had been so dismal through the first two games, just really lengthened Boston's lineup through the first couple games. It felt like if Tanaka and then the bullpen got through the first four hitters in Boston's lineup, they had smooth sailing through the bottom. But last night, a lot of the rallies were sparked by Holt and Christian Vazquez and Devers. Uh, And maybe tonight that won't happen, especially with a lefty on the mound. I don't know if Devers and Holt will even start again, but it gives Boston a new look going forward and gives them a deeper lineup to compete against the Yankees and Astros. I don't know how much credit I want to give him for that because <laughs> none of those hitters are actually good hitters. <laughs> right. <So>. Vasquez, <laughs> I, I'm going to bet heavy on Christian Vasquez not being a spark plug in, <laughs> in tonight's game or indeed any future game. Um, you know, Pierce over, over Mitch Moreland, you know, against a, against a righty, you know, Moreland is, is apparently dealing with a hamstring injury. Devers, you know, I don't know that you give him credit for starting Devers over Nunez two games late. You know, I, so it's not like Corey is, is pushing all the right buttons himself. So, but I guess once you, once you look at it at this point in the season, results matter way more than process at this point. So if, if you put Brock Holt in the lineup and Brock Holt goes four for six and hits for the cycle, then it's a good way to you know, your reputation. Could, could, yeah. <laughs> when you plug the yeah, guy in, I mean, he gets the first postseason cycle. Yeah. That makes you look good. Yeah, it does. And fair enough. So one, I don't know if there's any, you know, what you guys feel like, uh, does, well, I guess the, the biggest question is, does this game get back to Boston or the series get back to Boston? I think the series has been such a, a toss up, really just coming into it. I think it was pretty even, even though the Red Sox very handily won the AL East. There were reasons to think that the Yankees might be a, a better postseason team. And obviously they just got completely blown out, but I don't believe in a, a carryover effect from that. So I expect it to be as as close as, as it ever would be. So I think the Yankees in this game at home have at least even odds, maybe better than even odds of getting the series back to Boston. Obviously, Boston has the edge if you were going to project one of these teams as the winner since they have to win only one of the next two Mm -hmm. games, which is very elementary analysis, but that's the most important factor at this point. Well done sort of making a prediction. What do you think, Zach? I think (laughs) I'll also sort of hedge out of making a prediction and say that I hope it goes five just for the simple sake of first-round entertainment. If... The series ends tonight, then we have two days off of no baseball, but also it will have been a pretty mundane first round. I'm not sure, like, especially compared to last year, we had so many notable moments uh, with the yankees Indian series with Jose Altuve hitting three home runs against Boston. We had everything crazy that happened in the Cubs National Series, uh, but this would be only the second 
LDS round since 2009 to have no series go five. So it sort of becomes something we're accustomed to. We have the two wildcard games that are elimination games, and then we'll usually have at least one or two elimination games in the next round. And that hasn't happened. We will talk about the other series in a moment, but like the Rockies were never in the series. Even though the Braves won a game, it seemed like they were never in their series. Cleveland was never in its series. So this is the last chance we have to get some, you know, really notable memories from the first round. Yeah, that's that is really what strikes me about this postseason so far is how like I was done with the the Rockies Brewer series after game two. Um, and, the, you know, like you said, with the Braves, it, it felt like a gentleman sweep. And even the, the most competitive series so far, apart from this one, has been. That is was that Astros sweep of Cleveland, where at least Cleveland was leading late in a couple of those games or they, you know, they were in it and the Astros broke it open late. Um, but if you, we can move on to sort of looking back at some of the other series, if unless you guys have anything more to say about Red Sox Yankees. Nope, I'm ready. All right. So my takeaway from Red Sox Yankees so far is I feel really good about the Houston Astros in the ALCS. Um, <laughs> that, I mean, this. You talk about the the Indians bullpen and the and the Astros sort of ran up the score late in in games one and three, but that's a good pitching staff. You know, they got to Corey Kluber, they got to Trevor Bauer. Um, this this team has an ability, and I don't know if it's just I've watched more of the Astros than probably any other team over the past couple of years, but they have the ability to put together a conga line like no other offense I can remember. It's you know, it's not just. It's not just that they have a deep lineup. It just seems like when one of them gets going, all of them get going. And that has the effect of, you know, they can erase a five run deficit or if they're tied or leading by one late, like we saw in game in game three against Cleveland, that can be a seven or eight run game in the blink of an eye. And, you know, we've seen a breakout performance by Alex Bregman. Uh, George Springer is apparently continuing to only hit home runs in the playoffs. Their, Their pitching staff has pitched really well. This looks like the best team left in the bracket. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I think it's the best offense, or at least it's the only offense this year that had one of the best five strikeout rates and one of the best five walk rates. And that's coming off last year when I think they had, what, the best strikeout rate and the best home run rate Mm. or very close to it. So this is an offense that somehow they've constructed this lineup that can hit homers and can take walks and doesn't strike out a lot, which is kind of the holy grail. I mean, that's what everyone wants. So the fact that they can do that, that there's really no weak point, and then they have probably the best starting rotation, certainly that's left in this postseason. We thought that the Indians might give them a run for their money there, but that didn't really materialize. And then they have the bullpen that, as everyone has joked, probably has just about as good a bullpen that didn't even make the roster as some other teams have on their rosters. So there's no weak point. And there's A.J. Hinch, who is experienced and doesn't seem to make a lot of glaring tactical mistakes. So it's a team that has as much top-end talent as anyone and as much depth as anyone. So that doesn't mean they can't lose in a best of seven series, but I think coming into the playoffs, they were clearly the best team and haven't done anything to give us any other impression. The Astros, so there have been 200 teams in MLB history to play in an LDS series, and the Astros just had the best OPS of any team in any of those series. They OPS more than a 1,000 against a good pitching staff. We knew, like Ben said, that Cleveland 
their bullpen had problems coming in, and that's mostly where the Astros feasted, running up the score in Game 3. But 1,000 OPS against Cleveland, like I, I don't know who, what more you even need to add to that. I mean, you just look at, at what Bregman's doing. I mean, his OPS in the in the playoffs through three games starts with two. Um, and he, he went two for three with two walks in game three. And the one out he's credited with making was the uh, botched double play by Trevor Bauer that ended up turning the entire series on its head. I, it was, I was shocked that, that this, this series was, um, you know, I just called it competitive, but that's, a, I guess that's a relative term when you're talking about a week in which we, we watched what the Brewers did to the, to the Rockies. I mean, it, it just, you could, you could tell there's, you know, there's just something ineffable about this, this Astros team that they just look like they're completely comfortable right now. And, you know, some of that is, is probably just a shine from last year. Some of that is, is, you know, I wrote about this for today. Bregman is feeling himself to an extent that, that I don't know that we've seen any other uh, baseball player this season, but you I mean, this is, this is the scariest team in this playoffs, maybe in last playoffs, maybe since the 2016 Cubs or the 2016 Indians. Do you think they're better than the 2017 team that won the World yes. Series? Oh yeah, yeah, I, th- I think so too. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you where they you look at where they've gotten worse. I mean, it's really just Carlos Correa hasn't been right, and you know, there's been a little bit of drop off from from Reddick and Altuve, but adding Garrett Cole, reinforcing that bullpen, the leap mm-hmm. forward that Bregman's made. I mean, there were weaknesses on on last year's team, and I don't know where where those weaknesses are this year. Yeah. Um, we could talk about one interesting thing that came out of uh, uh, this series is the gap in you think about the Astros and uh, and the Indians as being two of the smarter front offices. You know, they're definitely uh, I, I, that's such a loaded term anymore. Um, but there was an interesting piece in the Athletic uh, Cleveland by Jason Lloyd talking about um, Indians players feeling like the Astros were better prepared, and I you know. Th- and it goes into, you know, there's some interesting comments um, by Trevor Bauer, Mike Clevenger, um, Edwin Encarnacion about maybe, you know, the Astros sort of felt like they know they knew what was coming in a, in a way that Cleveland did. And I think that, you know, that speaks to the importance of, of you know, you can have all the data in the world, but communicating it well to, to the players. If that's really the difference in this series, then then what a difference it made. Yeah, these comments were really interesting because obviously we can't tell from afar in a three-game series whether any particular play was predicated on some brilliant advanced scouting report. But if the players feel that's the case, I think that's worth paying attention to. And this is the part of the season where teams will sit on a specific team for weeks at a time, get to know every in and out of that roster, all the tendencies of the players. And so this is the time when we tend to hear, usually after the fact, that, oh, so-and-so was tipping his pitches, which, of course, we heard last year with Carlos Beltran, the the Mm -hmm. pitch-tipping master. And this was part of the narrative of the Royals' runs, too, that they were just so fantastic at advanced scouting maybe not in the same analytics-driven way that the Astros are, but we had one of the Royals advanced scouts on this podcast two Octobers ago to talk about that advantage there. So I think that can be a real thing, and maybe we'll hear more details later in the inevitable Tom Verducci expose. But I think the idea that it's 
based on the data is interesting because obviously the Indians were one of the early adopters when it comes to sabermetrics. And I mean, they were into all of that when Jeff Luno was still a a consultant, right? So Mm -hmm. it's not that they don't know the things that the Astros know, I would think, but it's possible that they are just not as adept at communicating it and packaging that information in such a way that the players are receptive to it. And, And maybe it's just that the Astros have this aura now of the team that knows things that other teams don't. Maybe they're in everyone's heads where if they look prepared, we assume it's because they have some special insight, whereas maybe they just had a few good games. And, you know, let me say also, this is a completely different series if Bauer doesn't hang that curveball to Bregman and if he doesn't throw away that double play ball in the seventh inning on Monday. And so maybe this is just, you know, we've seen how many times is a frustrated Trevor Bauer said something that that probably has some truth to it, but maybe isn't telling the the whole story when it when it comes to scouting or, or development or coaching or, or whatever. So, you know, it, this could just be frustration. This could just be post hoc reasoning. But I think, you know, if if there's fire here and not just smoke, I think that's a a huge weapon going forward for for Houston. It's really difficult to disentangle this sense of analytics versus just pure talent. Like there's a line in this piece about how the hitters receive different levels of of preparation. And it says Indians hitters looked uncomfortable and off balance flailing at pitches throughout this series. That might be a result of not having the proper scouting, but it also might just be Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole are really good pitchers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if there is a scouting report that tells you how to figure out Verlander and Cole. Right. And you know, then you look the other way, Perhaps the biggest at-bat of the series was the Marwin Gonzalez double against Andrew Miller in Game 2 that swung that game and gave Houston the lead. Andrew Miller faced five batters in this series, and he only got one out. Part of that might be that Houston was really prepared. It also might just be that Andrew Miller has looked off all season because of his various injuries and isn't anywhere near the pitcher he was in 2016. So I would assume these are more contributing factors than like the main culprit as We've been talking about for the last sure. 10 minutes. Houston is just really, really good. But I, I think if I'm like another general manager of one of the 29 other teams looking at this piece, trying to take away lessons from this series, it's hard to know exactly what to do with that information. There's probably nothing you can do about it right now. And, uh, you know, maybe this, this is just, and again, you know, information only does so much you need to actually get up there and you know you need breaks like Bauer throwing that double play ball away you need Marwin Gonzalez turning a pitch over his head into the eventual series winning double um but as always baseball is unpredictable and determined by fine margins except in the case of the Brewers and Rockies which we'll get to in a second because speaking of margins we have to do some commerce so we'll be right back after the break Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Navy Federal Credit Union is proud to serve no matter when you served or where life takes you. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. Easily access your accounts, transfer money, pay bills, and deposit checks with the Navy Federal mobile app. Navy Federal is open to the Armed Forces, DOD veterans, and their family members, and they're proud to serve more than 8 million members, including more than 1 million veterans and their families. Navy Federal Credit Union are members of the mission. 
Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. That's NavyFederal.org for more information or call 1-888-842-6328. Message and data rates may apply. Navy Federal is federally insured by NCUA. This program is also brought to you by Bombas. Thanks to two years of research and development and multiple improvements in design, performance, and comfort, Bombas are the most comfortable socks in the history of feet. With an arch support system that provides extra support where you need it most and a cushioned footbed that's reinforced for comfort without added bulkiness, Bombas feel like a hug around your foot. Not to mention Bombas Stay Up technology ensures that your socks stay in place without leaving a mark. And the super soft cotton material makes you never want to take it off. So whether you're a runner, power walker, power lounger, there's a pair of Bombas that'll add comfort for your life. Now, I live in Michigan where winter is coming and that means I'm serious about my socks. And I'll just say this, if... You know the saying, you're only as comfortable as your feet, whether it's indoor, outdoor, hot, cold, wet, dry, that's never more true than with Bombas socks. And if that interests you, it turns out that you can get Bombas as well. You can go to bombas.com slash MLB and use the code MLB for 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash MLB, code MLB, and you'll get 20% off your first order. And now back to the baseball. I just want to start off by saying, like, it almost feels disrespectful to do as little with a postseason spot as the Rockies did. Like the Brewer, the Brewers pitching staff was incredible. Yelich had a great series. Eric Kratz obviously had a, a legend making series. Um, but this it just felt like a total Colorado no show. It, it almost just it was it was frustrating to watch in a, in a way that I don't think any other series has been. Yeah, I think it's a a combination of things. I mean, A, it's the small sample, and B, it's that Rockies are not a good hitting team. We've been saying this all season. It's always deceptive because they score a lot of runs in Colorado regardless of how good the offense is. But once you park adjust it, you see that they really only had three or four good hitters, and even those good hitters didn't really show up in this series. I don't know if you have a a Nolan Arenado is unclutch rant that you're ready to uncork here. (laughs) but. See, the Just problem is I need the Rockies to last far enough into the playoffs for me to build up some <laughs> some numbers on this. They get eliminated so quick. Yeah. I can, I don't know. It's, uh, no one <laughs> right. or not well, in the playoffs is frustrating. And I mean, it's, I'm not going to drop the, I know we joked last week about how I go right back to 1985 whenever the playoffs start in terms of my analysis, but. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, it's tough not to fall and- right back into that. And the Brewers' bullpen is good, and it's what got them here. And they are the, I think, the the team that has won the division series with the fewest innings ever from its starting pitchers. They had more innings from their relievers than their starters, and I think that's even if you count their quote-unquote starter in the bullpen game in game one. So that's kind of the, the blueprint that they have ridden all season, and the Rockies maybe were somewhat fatigued from having to travel a lot. And I don't know, they didn't get to use Kyle Freeland because they had to go through game 163 in the wild card. So a lot of things were stacked against them. And they're a team that got outscored by not playoff caliber competition for much of the season until their late September run. The pre, I guess, division series podcasts on which Michael and I talked about this series, I expressed some skepticism about Craig Council's pitching strategy. And Michael said, well, 
the thing they really should hope for is that the series ends quickly and the relievers that they're going to be using so much can rest before the next round. That's exactly what happened. They used Jeremy Jeffress, Corey Kniebel, Joachim Soria, and Josh Hader in every single game in this series. So that's not necessarily sustainable going forward, but this is certainly the best case scenario. They held, I mean, the Rockies scored in one run, uh, in one inning the entire series. So obviously the other pitchers pitch really well in addition to those main foursome, Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns. So this certainly has the look of a deep pitching staff right now. The question is, as we asked, is it that the Rockies just sort of rolled over or are they like that good every single day going forward? I mean, I'll just throw it. Non-Jeremy Jeffers pitchers allowed zero runs, eight hits, and in 24 and two-thirds innings pitch with 26 strikeouts. And the difference in this series is not just that Hayter was great and, and Soria was great and Corbin Burns was great. It was that like that Brandon Woodruff was was lights out in his start and they they need innings from Woodruff they need they're going to need in the in the LCS they're going to need uh Chassin or Gio Gonzalez to go deep into at least one game I think or they're going to need the bullpen to be this good I think what could I think this works as long as the bullpen keeps pitching like this you know the big question that we need to we need to answer about Milwaukee is what happens when Josh Hader gives up four runs in an inning, or he can only get one out on a day where he's supposed to throw two and two thirds innings or, or something like that. What happens if, if Woodruff blows up in his start and they need to go to somebody deeper in, into their, their relief core? I mean, we almost came to this uh, in game one when Jeffers blew the save. Like if that game had gone 11 or 12 innings, they would have had to, to get deeper into pitchers that they might not have wanted to use. And so We'll see what happens. I mean, I think Gio Gonzalez is, is capable of pitching into the sixth or seventh if uh, if the situation demands it, but we'll see how patient Craig Council is. We'll see how those first couple games go. I think there's a lot of volatility um, around this team, particularly when they face a, a team with more than four good hitters. And that's, I mean, yeah. that's really what sunk Colorado is just, it doesn't matter if, like, if Freeland had pitched, what it, you know, what was it? The game just going to be scoreless longer? Because if you literally don't, this is going to sound reductive, but if you literally don't score, you're going to lose. And so, <laughs> and not only that, if if you get through Arenado and Story and Blackman in that lineup, there's nobody who can hurt you for the rest. You know, you can go two innings without getting challenged. Like it's 1908 yeah. and Christy Matthewson Tony Walters himself, after you know? Ryan McMahon after yeah. Pat Valaika. <laughs> it just goes and, on and on. And guys, you know, that's that's really what sunk Colorado. It's that you could get through half of that line, and particularly when you're trying to run good pitchers out of the game, run up their their pitch counts when, you know, Milwaukee had a limited number of bullets to use and they just I mean, you they scored what four runs total in their their five most important games of the season. It's a miracle they made it this far. It was the season in miniature for the Rockies, you mentioned Kyle Freeland, who didn't pitch in the series. The three starters who did pitch, Herman Marquez, Antonio Sensatella, Tyler Anderson, none of them allowed more than two runs. So I was say, the pitchers were pretty good. The, like they didn't they didn't get really torched until uh Wade Davis came in in game three. And that by that point the series was over. And the <laughs> bullpen struggled throughout the whole series with the Rockies again, which was a problem they had the entire season of their of their splurges from the offseason when they spent over $100 million on the bullpen, neither Jake McGee nor Brian Shaw even pitched in this series. So, And as you said, Wade Davis struggled. So it really was everything we've been saying about the Rockies for the last six months. Uh, 
contained into three games just without them pulling wins out of nowhere to actually advance. Yeah, and the Rockies' bullpen was good late in the year, was good down the stretch. That was a big part of how they caught up to the Dodgers. Uh, and, and honestly, they were fine in the in the playing game, in the wild card mm-hmm. game, and you know they weren't terrible in this series. It was just yeah, a, I mean, bullpen performance is so variable from season to season, let alone month to month, let alone playoff round to playoff round. So as great as the Brewers' bullpen looked in this series, and really as great as it was for most of the season— it's going to be harder to do what they just did against the Dodgers, who have the most selective lineup in baseball. They don't chase. Not that the Brewers' bullpen is is solely dependent on getting guys to chase. They can just miss bats in the strike zone, too. But it's obviously harder to do, and you will rack up pitch counts against those guys because they're not going to help you out the way that half of the Rockies' lineup will. And the Dodgers' ability to substitute going essentially 13 deep with on the bench with with guys who can actually hit that can make it tougher for a guy like Hader or Burns who has to go multiple innings to get through without dealing with opposite handed batters. And obviously both of those guys can get both lefties and righties out, but it's just, it's going to make it harder for Craig council to bite off big chunks of the game with an individual reliever. If Dave Roberts is coming back late in the game and substituting a lot. So we'll see how that goes. Um, Let's talk about the Dodgers real quick before we're, uh, we're done. Uh, is Clayton Kershaw is the playoff narrative over? Zach, you were you were in attendance when Kershaw mowed down the the Braves through eight innings in, in game two. It was a strange game. I think, unlike anything we've seen from Kershaw in the playoffs before, uh, both because he was successful, but also because of how he was successful. The very first pitch of the game was a Ronald Acuna double. Uh, I think Dodger Stadium was rather worried at that point. Was the narrative going to continue? But Kershaw allowed just one more hit the rest of the night, and it was an infield single, but he also only struck out three batters. He was just generating lots of soft contact. Atlanta was the most aggressive team swinging at first pitches this season, and they continued that throughout the playoffs. Uh, But they were only able to generate a lot of weak ground balls, lazy fly balls. Kershaw wasn't threatened at all, and he only needed, I think, 85 pitches to get through eight innings. He probably could have gone out for the ninth. Uh, Dave Roberts engaged in a little bit of a gamesmanship uh, in bringing Kenley Jansen out for that inning, but it was the first time in his playoff career he had ever pitched into the eighth inning uh, in a game he started. So uh, a promising step forward for him, but I also don't know how much it matters in the larger tapestry of his playoff career when really at this point it's can he can he win the World Series is the only question we're still asking about him. It felt, you know, you Kershaw is so frequently spectacular. It felt weird. Like, this felt like a Kyle Hendricks start. It mm-hmm. was just routine and low energy and just sort of, you know, you get him from one batter to the next, and all of a sudden, it's two hours later, and, you know, he's he hasn't allowed a run in the seventh or eighth inning. And, it you know, it's, it's weird to see that show up in the playoffs, you know, but, and we'll see if he can do it against Milwaukee, which I think is a little, it's a little more selective lineup. We'll see if anybody can get Yelich out. I think that's going to be a, a big, you know, big uh, determining factor in this series. Obviously, but I just like to see Kershaw pitch well in the playoffs, just because of how much bullshit he's dealt with in the past. Yeah, I mean, Kershaw's morphing into more of a Freeland type starter as he ages. I mean, that's just who he is now. 
He threw more sliders than four-seamers in this start, which is something that he did down the stretch, really, after he came off the DL. He is all breaking balls now because his fastball is not nearly as fast as it once was. And he has shown an ability historically to induce weak contact. And I'm hopeful that he has found a, a new mode here where maybe he is not the best pitcher in baseball, but maybe he can be one of the top 10 or 20 for an indefinite period of time if he doesn't decline any further stuff-wise. And you can't really succeed long-term striking out three guys for every eight innings you pitch. But I think in this particular start, he was taking advantage of his opponent, which, as mentioned, very aggressive, and he was very efficient. And I think it served him well. He was doing the classic pitcher-type things of changing eye levels and mixing speeds and locations. And he was just kind of pitching rather than overpowering anyone. And It's nice to see him succeed just after all the times that he either hasn't or has been accused of not succeeding when really he was pitching on short rest or had terrible bullpen support. That has been a a common theme. I think now he and David Price are the only two pitchers who have an ERA at least a run higher in the postseason than they do in the regular season over at least 75 innings, which is how many postseason innings Price has now. And in both of those cases, obviously, Price has only hurt his reputation so far in this series. But in both of those cases, you can point to so many isolated incidents or instances where they were good and they were clutch and they were dominant, which makes it all the more perplexing that the overall record looks like it does because you can't just paint with a a broad brush and say, well, they're never good. They always choke. There are many cases where they have been good, which makes it all the more frustrating that they're not on a regular basis. We're not going to see the Braves again until next season. You know, do either of you have takeaways? Do we feel like we learned anything from this Braves team during, during the past weekend? I think we learned that their roster still isn't complete, which is maybe a, a trite takeaway, but especially when some of their starters weren't getting the innings that Brian Snicker might have wanted, like those were not relievers I expected to see pitching important innings in the playoffs. Atlanta has like 12 young starters at AAA. I wonder how that will shake out next spring if some of them do get shuttled to the bullpen uh, at the major league level. But they're a very young team. They have money to spend. I'm curious if they go out and, and add a, a really big name to either bolster the lineup or the, the bullpen. Um, it kind of feels like they're on the typical track we think of for a young up-and-coming team. They broke through maybe earlier than expected in winning the division, but then they weren't able to do much in the playoffs. So you would hope if uh, development is linear that next year they'd take another step forward and be able to look like they belong on the same field as the Dodgers, which no insult to them. They frankly didn't for most of the series. Yeah, and I think you look at at the Braves pitching staff and you know maybe they're a team that could benefit from chasing somebody like Patrick Corbin in free agency. We'll see. You know, the whole reason that that this team is constituted the way it is is because Liberty Media bailed on the the Simmons, Hayward, um, Kimbrell core that got to the playoffs a few times the earlier part of this decade. So we'll see what their commitment to to uh, spending to keep this team competitive long term is. Um, But you could see the reinforcements coming internally. 
um, you know, Mike Soroka gets healthy. Kyle Wright comes up and and becomes part of the rotation. Tuki Toussaint continues to develop. Fulton Avich is still relatively early. I mean, he's he's older uh, and he's been through some injuries, but he's still got a lot of gas left in the tank. I I just wonder they feel a batter too short. And I, you know, Ozzy Albies has taken a little bit of a step back in the second half of the season. Dansby Swanson wasn't involved in the series through injury. So it's good. It's going to be interesting. I think the first place they're going to look to, to fill some of these holes is internally. And then we'll see how much good that does. You know, we'll see what those reinforcements are worth. And that, that'll be the interesting thing uh, as far as the Braves are concerned, whether they can do this before the nationals reload or the, or the Mets come back and, um, if they can rebuild this team around uh Garden to Grom or, you know, the Phillies are, are, you know, as, as bad as they played down the stretch, they're right there on, on a similar point in the developmental path. So we'll see if they can keep it, if the Braves can keep ahead of the competition and how they try to do it. Yeah. And development isn't always linear. Sometimes you break through a little early and then there's kind of a consolidation year and then you come back as the, the fully fledged team that you envisioned. It's kind of like the Astros where they mm-hmm. made the playoffs for the first time in 2015 with an 86 win team that was probably better than that. And then they came back the following year and missed the playoffs entirely. And then the year after that, they won the World Series. So I'm not saying it will certainly happen that way for the Braves, but I think they were a little ahead of schedule, but there's enough talent there that this just seems like the opening salvo of what is probably going to be the better part of a, a decade of being either the best team in this division or highly competitive. One other thing I'll take from this series, the more I see of Ronald Acuna, the more excited I get. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's he's special and he's fun and I'm I'm really excited to to watch him in many Octobers to come. Um, so we're going to, we're going to preview the, the NLCS later this week. Uh, we'll, we'll figure out who, 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 uh, who wins out of um, the Yankees and Red Sox and, and get to both league championship series previews uh, later this week. But this feels like a, a good po- point to, to end the podcast, unless either of you guys have anything more to add. I just hope we have more competition. Uh, I, I prepared for the playoffs by watching a 30-minute long YouTube video of the best playoff highlights from <laughs> this decade, which was really exciting. I'd forgotten about some of the moments, and I kind of found myself watching the first round of the playoffs thinking, like, what will make the, the 2018 version of this YouTube video? And we haven't had many so far. So that's my hope going forward. You think about... It's weird because all the big highlights you think about Acuna's grand slam off off Walker Bueller ended up almost not even mattering within the within that game, let alone the series. Or you know, I was talking to to Ryan in the aftermath of the NL wildcard game. Like it feels like I should have something to say about this uh, this entire round of the playoffs with this very close, tense game, and it was just incredibly. Uh, uncompelling nihilistic so i'm with you I, it's it's easy to to do content to do preview content when uh when every series goes three or four games and and it's pretty non-competitive but it's definitely not as much fun to watch no and there just haven't been a lot of lead changes there just haven't been many games where you open up the win probability graph and just 
stare at it slack-jawed. I don't know if everyone does that. I do that. But but we just haven't had much opportunity to do that so far. And I don't know whether that is... Before before Game 3, the sorry, the Astros-Indian series, I I think Jason Stark said that there had been one lead change the entire playoffs. And there was another one in that game. Yeah. And there was a couple in the the Braves-Dodgers game uh, on Monday night, too. The most exciting game that we've seen this month, I suppose, has been Rockies-Cubs, right? And even that sort of outstayed its welcome. That wasn't exciting at all. (laughs) It was was for a while, and then it became a slog. But I, I wonder whether it's partly a product of the bullpen usage. We are at roughly 50%, just like 50-50 split between starters and relievers right now. And in theory, you would think that if managers are using relievers in a more aggressive or optimal way, that might make it harder to mount comebacks. But I don't know. The, The bullpens that we've seen are not universally shut down units. So that might just be a a coincidence, but I would expect that to continue. Really, we were hoping that the Indians might be our our best chance of a heavy rotation user, and they did not last long. Well, even then, when the bullpen fails, because I mean, there's the, this is a paradoxical thing about bullpen and bullpenning is the more short relievers you use in the game, the greater probability is you like a game, a minesweeper, you run into one that, that doesn't have it that night. But even when that happens, you know, Alex Wood giving up that home run to Freddie Freeman in game three of the, of the Braves Dodgers series, like that's over in an instant. And it, we're, we find ourselves looking for, yeah, for very specific kinds of, of, uh, bullpen ineptitude. I don't know. I, you know, I think back to, to last year's world series where just you get those three, three hours of boredom followed by seven seconds of sheer terror games where you, mm-hmm. you know, you just get run into one home run after another. We'll see. We'll see what, uh, what happens here. But I think, I think part of the problem is just some of these series were, were mismatches. And I know I picked the Braves over the the Dodgers. I think I was just, I found myself slightly disagreeing with Zach and, and really enjoyed that feeling and wanted to continue to, <laughs> to feel it longer. So I had, I picked something I didn't completely believe in, but once the deeper we get in the playoffs, the more competitive series we get, I think we'll, we'll run into a few of those games. Mm, the seduction of the contrarian take. It's hard it's, to pass up. Well, it's easy for you to pass up. This <laughs> yeah. is why, I avoid <laughs> why you sound takes. like you're half asleep all the time. <laughs> I'm just trying to do anything to make myself feel alive here, Ben. (laughs) I'm sure this postseason will have a few 2017 World Series type games in store for us. We've we've got a few weeks to go here. Yeah, I hope so. All right. Well, thanks to both of you for joining me today. We will check in periodically as uh, as the postseason unfolds. We'll see if it gets any more interesting. But until then, uh, you know, thanks for joining me. Good talking to you. Have a good one. That'll do it for this episode of the Ringer MLB show. I'd like to thank Zach Cram and Ben Lindbergh for joining me today. Thank you to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thank you to Aaron Boone, Alex Bregman, and Clayton Kershaw for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the action, and we'll see you next time. Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply.